0: Hey, everyone. My name is Derek Shu. Welcome to another episode of I Pledge Allegiance, the podcast where we discuss the most interesting governance proposals, debates, and themes in on-chain governance today. This week, we have a fascinating topic to talk about, which is beta doubt. It's something that has entered the crypto lingo in the past few months and is something that more and more people are thinking about and, and curious. Today, we bring on two of the foremost experts, on this new category, I'm pleased to welcome John Morrow, the COO of Gauntlet. They are one of the most active contributors and participants in governance, and have thought deeply about this beta DAO category and have possibly more experience than anyone else. I'm also very pleased to bring on my co-founder at Reverie, Larry Sukernick. He is also an active governance participant and thinks a lot about beta DAO and best practices and how will this evolve in the future. So I think we can get right into it guys, thanks for coming on. I think the biggest question that people have about B2DAO is simply, how do you define it? And how is B2DAO different than traditional B2B and B2B sales? John, I don't know if you want to get started with you.
1: Yeah, I think the sort of defining characteristic of B2DAO is that commercial relationships are voted on by token holders in a DAO. If you were selling services or software to I don't know, like a labs team, That's like a Delaware corporation that's launched a protocol, that would look probably similar to any B2B sales cycle. However, with B2DAO, you're, I guess, forced to, or at least you have to go on chain and get token holders to vote to pay you. And that's just a very different go to market and sales cycle than any B2B business has seen before.
2: Yeah, I couldn't agree more with John. If you think about a traditional company and you're selling a product to a traditional company, maybe you're selling to one or two people, they have the authority to make the purchasing decision. And of course, if it's a larger budget item, maybe there's more people. But generally, it's a smaller group of individuals. Versus in the DAO context, when you're selling, you're selling to a huge amount of token holders. And so a lot of dominoes have to fall at the same time for that sale to go through for that purchasing decision to get made. And you know, if there's one big difference between traditional B2B and be the DAO, I'd definitely say that's the
0: one. And do you guys see these differences having to interface with a larger community and really have an emphasis on talking to a large group? Is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? Or is it a mix? You know, I think there's probably
1: some trade-offs here. Even at a small company, if that company was going to enter a commercial relationship with a service provider it's possible that not every single person in that company would be able to like meaningfully analyze and weigh in thoughtfully on that decision of whether or not to go with a service provider or or another one or build something in house, et cetera. And so I think when you expand the number of people weighing in on a decision to a much larger group of people, you're going to have people who probably aren't able to meaningfully contribute to decision-making. And so I think that it forces you to figure out, hey, how can we include those people? How can we publish on the forums and respond to people on the forums in a way that'll help you understand the trade-offs of the decision they're voting on. However, yeah, there's probably some inefficiencies going on there. In the end, systems are going to be able to get more done if they're able to make decisions quickly and deploy funds quickly. And Involving tons of people in a decision is never a great way to speed it up. Now, in doing so, you're able to maintain decentralization and involve the community and important decisions for a protocol, which are these other goals that certainly don't speed up progress, but I think you still can make progress while keeping things
2: decentralized and involving the community in key decisions. I'm glad we have you on for this question, John, because you guys, Gauntlet that is, you you sell a pretty complicated product simulations and financial modeling for DAOs. And I imagine you have a really deep circle of competency for doing so. And on the forums, oftentimes, I'm sure you'll get a lot of complaints or comments from people who probably shouldn't be sitting at that table to even comment about these things just because they don't have that expertise or competency. How frustrating is that? And how often do you have to deal with customers who probably don't fully appreciate the complexity of the product or software that you're selling? I don't
1: think frustration is a good look on anyone, so I try not to get frustrated. Some of the feedback we get is really helpful when people don't understand things, because we do want a broad audience of people to understand that Gauntlet Services and sort of a risk management product more directly. We really think that our risk management product allows people to balance capital efficiency and risk in their protocol in a way that will make the protocol more money. And so I think that in the end, If DAOs are going to be voting in service providers or or any sort of proposal, those proposals should be kind of clearly ROI positive. And getting feedback from people in the forums, no matter how little technical understanding they have, that feedback is helpful in in helping us craft a story that makes it clear to everyone that, hey, we're going to make these protocols money by better managing capital efficiency and risk. That being said, I think the one thing that I think is just really hard to engage with is... A lot of people in forums basically don't talk about trade-offs or reasonable alternatives. I kind of think actually one example of this, to, to pick one that's not personal to me, is like the current issues going on at Sushi. People are like, okay, let's fire the entire dev team. And I don't know all the details about what happened, but I think it's very unlikely that no dev team is better than the existing dev team. And so I think that's a thing where there's a lot of people who you know, comment on things and it will like, say, oh, this is bad because of X, but they don't really describe things in, in terms of like real trade-offs that the protocol community can make. And if we were to listen to all of those people, protocols would just never do anything. I think in the end, all these DAOs, they basically manage a product and products need to ship. And so I think as long as like community feedback is something that can be addressed, describes clear trade-offs, it's always valuable. And if it's just negging or what i don't I'm not sure how to put it, then you know that's something that we'll definitely think about, but probably doesn't make sense to just address because defending the idea of like the protocol should have a dev team versus shouldn't have a dev team like that's just not like a productive conversation to have, but yeah, that's sort of how I think about it.
0: you both bring up some great points. There's certainly a lot of comments on many of the proposals that involve beta dev vendors right now. Some of them are a term I like to use but is bike shredding where it's like they're not super constructive, they're sort of going after. Minute and really insignificant details, but the most helpful comments are ones where they push back on something pretty specific. Like it might be the time period. It might be the fee. It might be the communication schedule. And then they sort of offer an alternative on what they would like to see. And they offer a specific path forward that can help the vendor understand, okay, here's what it might take to get this person or this group of people more on board with this idea. That's something that communities can understand when evaluating these things. Given some of these nuances of talking to communities, what do you see as the biggest pro of running a beta DAO process? Why does it help the DAO to go through this and sort of allow a large group of people to have a transparent look and say and how these deals are structured, starting with Larry? I think there's so many
2: different benefits to the transparency of the process. I mean, we can debate the pros and cons all day long. I'm not sure where we would shake out. First of all, a lot of business in the traditional world, for better or worse, contracts are given to friends. So if you work at Goldman or if you work at Fidelity and you need some compliance help, you'll go to one of the big four firms and maybe you know the partner there from college and you'll give them the business, even though that may not be the best service in the market. I think in the Dow case, some of that does still happen, but the transparency of it really forces the vendors to put their best foot forward and provide the best quality service and not just you know, nepotism, for lack of a better word. I think that's a huge pro when DAOs are purchasing these things because it really does encourage the best vendor to win, not the best network vendor to win, although the networking certainly helps. You know, it certainly helps with the fees. When you debate fees in public, you sort of are able to gauge the community's feedback on, hey, is this too high? Is this too low? Is this the right fee we should be paying? And, and that sort of discourse about the fees certainly drives, I think, prices on average down. And so if you're buying things, you obviously want prices to be lower than higher. And so DAOs definitely pay less for things than they would if they were private companies.
1: Yeah, you know, I find that second assertion maybe a little less convincing because inherently there's just like not that many people who have figured out how to provide services to DAOs. And so DAOs are at a disadvantage, traditional companies that might have a competitive ecosystem of service providers because people that like, don't know how to sell to DAOs. And I, I think obviously that's changing. And I think with the auditing proposal on Compound and a few other things we've seen in the space, I think some of the stuff that Gauntlet has done has helped push us forward as well. I think we're getting to a place where the market for services for DAOs is becoming more competitive. But in the end, I think the only thing that's going to drive lower prices is a competitive market. And I think that we're still a little early in B to DAO to fully see that. Again, on the transparency side, any company could be more transparent. If that was like valuable to the company, there's nothing really stopping them from doing so. For me, the real value of this is that when DAOs own products, and in this case, protocols, it achieves all of the sort of advantages of decentralization and censorship resistance and things like that. And the problem, though, is with all those advantages that come with building a DAO and having a DAO own the product, you also have these disadvantages, which makes it hard to get stuff done. And so, I think the cool thing about beta DAO and these DAO service provider relationships being formed in the open is that it allows DAOs to like actually ship and not do everything themselves. So for instance, if you're building a protocol, maybe you don't also want to build a risk management platform. And so I think that's where Gauntlet slots in, we're sort of like this plug and play risk desk for various different DAOs. But it, I think it allows these protocols to sort of ship and get more done in a world where, you know, decentralization makes it a lot harder to do that in many ways. And so I think the advantage is B2DAO solves problems for DAOs
2: as far as just helping them get stuff done. So that's kind of how I view the value of it. That's a great answer, John. You mentioned that, I mean, really, there's not that many service providers selling to DAOs and this B2DAO thing. It's still very much a narrative. It's slowly happening, but most large businesses in the crypto space are still not selling to DAOs. Now, just kind of curious, when you guys started... Gauntlet was there ever a vision to sell to DAOs and develop that playbook, or was this an emergent thing you guys realized over time?
1: Very much the latter. We also started Gauntlet in 2018. I think Maker was like the only DAO then, other than of course the DAO, a very important canary in the DAO coal mine. You know, it's funny because everyone looked at the DAO as like this huge failure back. I think in 2016, and the thing is that like now DAOs are just like a huge part of the crypto ecosystem, and so. They really walked so everyone else could run. It's funny now that something of you talked about DAOs in twenty sixteen, it was looked at as a huge failure. And now they're just everywhere. So yeah, we started calling in twenty eighteen, DAOs didn't really exist. And but one thing we noticed is like we started working with compound in 2019 and they were like, hey, we're decentralizing our company. And we're like, oh, well, it's gonna be really hard to like continue to grow our business if our clients keep turning into DAOs. So we were like, okay, well, what's this DAO gonna look like? Could we potentially work directly for the DAO? And I think People that we talked to on the compound team were like, yeah, I know that sounds great. And then now we saw along with compound releasing its governance system and token in 2020, many other protocols followed. And so then there became a sort of ecosystem of DAOs that are able to basically issue equity in a dilutive fashion to incentivize service providers and other contributors. And so that sort of just emerged naturally with decentralization of projects across the space.
0: So for roughly 18 months into this beta dao emerging landscape, if Compound released their governance token in summer 2020, when we're still in the grand scheme of things very early, like both sides of the market vendors and the DAOs themselves are still really figuring out best practices on how to do these things. And I think we're all making lots of mistakes and iterating on it and hopefully getting to a point where it's a good experience for everyone. John, as someone that has gone through this Process a few times with different projects. What pieces of advice would you have for a vendor that's thinking about selling to a DAO? Because we've seen some companies try to do this, and it's really blown back on them really heavily in a public way. And then there's others like you guys that do do a better job. So curious what you would say to someone that's thinking about doing this, but unsure where to start.
1: I think it really starts with quantifying and describing impact clearly. Gaullet might be at a little bit of an advantage to other service providers and people trying to sell B2DAO in that we're a platform for financial modeling. And so, you know, when we propose risk management, we use that platform to estimate what is the impact of this. And so we can make statements to the protocol that's like, hey, this will save borrowers $5.7 million a year and it'll drive $8 million more of reserves to compound over the course of a year, et cetera. So we can make these statements about the impact that Gauntlet's platform can have relying on our platform. I think that is probably the most important thing to do because in the end, these proposals should be ROI positive. And sometimes that return is a little nebulous. Like for instance, if someone is doing like PR for a DAO, it might be hard to set KPIs that clearly profited the DAO. And so I think that like people will have to get more comfortable with taking on risk on some of these relationships and arrangements over time. But yeah, I think it really just starts with describing the impact, how you think you're going to basically make the DAO money or impact the out positively, and then continuing
0: to track that impact and report back to the community to show that things are actually on track. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. It's something that Larry and I have spoken about, where it starts with just like understanding the core KPIs and metrics that people care about for their project. For a lot of them, it's TVL. I know there's some debate about whether that's the the right metric to be optimizing for, but for others, it's volume or origination amounts or or specific assets or for, for others, it's L2. But yeah, I think being able to explain concisely and clearly how you will directly impact those numbers is probably the best way to go about it. And there's going to be certain categories that are tangential, but still important and don't necessarily directly impact some of these KPIs. But it's sort of intuitive that you just have to be very clear about how you get from point A to point B of future growth. John, one thing I noticed with you guys
2: is you guys are just like really incredible at the actual community sales bit. A lot of companies that Derek and I have worked with who are traditional businesses trying to sell to DAOs, they sort of take a traditional approach of sales, and they don't really understand how to sell to the community, how to go on the community forums, what sort of voice to use, how to go on the community calls and discord, how to speak to the community in general. And you guys are just incredible at it. And how does it work when someone new at Gauntlet starts and you give them a contract and you say, well, you know, you'll be working with, with Ave or Compound. What sort of things do you have to teach them for them to be that good? Is there any sort of magic sauce that you can share? I think part of it is we have a platform that heavily
1: automates a lot of the risk management we're doing. And so the last mile of like communicating on changes to parameters and things like that on the forum, we have a lot of infrastructure that's going to help us provide s- sort of supporting evidence and context for parameter changes we're making, whether it's rolling volatility and liquidity estimates, changes to positions that are being taken out on Ave Compound, et cetera, these, these various protocols we're, we're managing risk for, that sort of user behavior can impact risk. And so we have lots of automation that just gives us tons of ammo to basically describe why we think our changes are the best. On top of that, we just also are active in tons of communities. We just voted on some Maker proposals last night, and we're not in a commercial relationship with Maker. We've actually done some analysis for them from previously. I would totally check out our Maker report, which we can link in the episode notes, but we just are active in these communities. We know people in these communities and we have worked with these people before. And I think any communication is going to be a lot easier when you start from a place of trust. And so we try to very vocally and publicly participate in governance, share our thoughts, have a principled approach to how we vote on things. And so that we kind of can build that trust so that when we do eventually have those conversations and some of those can be difficult, we're sort of starting on
0: third base within these communities. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think the key word is credibility. Communities and DAOs get a lot of forum posts and a lot of proposals for lots of different things. And for a lot of people, as they're reading through them, they sort of eventually develop this almost skeptical mindset where they're like, okay, how is this forum post or proposal trying to screw over the project? And that happens specifically to people that are coming in with less context, are haven't been engaged previously. And you're just not sure if they're long-term aligned with the project, to be frank. It's like, you don't want to work with someone that their whole desire is to just like jam this governance proposal through. And then you don't know if in a year or in two years, they'll be around or even really care about the success of your project. So I think that's just something else that matters a lot, developing a reputation and credibility, both for, for working with DAOs broadly and for the specific community that you're trying to work with because it's a much broader set of stakeholders. It's a much longer process to get to know them compared to a normal B2B process. And just because you're successful at selling to traditional companies and traditional stakeholders that make those decisions, which might just be like a handful of people, it doesn't necessarily translate. You sort of have to build up that muscle over time, which I think goes back to what you said, John, earlier about how there's a lot of super smart people and companies that haven't done this before. So they're behind. I mean, that's an advantage that others do have. Because we were so early in trying to sell the DAOs, it wasn't even clear that we would be able to like
1: push through governance proposals with any regularity. And so we need to do that to actually drive impact to the DAOs and things like that. So when we first sort of tested the water on compound, the first DAO that we were active in, our goals were like, hey, let's just pass a proposal. And then sort of at the end of last year, we were like, okay, well, let's pass a proposal where we get paid like, because no one's ever gotten paid by a DAO before. And so we became active in governance because we just were like, well, let's start doing things because if we ever want to do something where we get paid for our service, we should at least have some experience under our belt getting stuff done in governance. And I think we learned from that, just testing the waters in that experience there that, oh, actually like just Being an active member of these communities is is important to building trust. And no one wants, for lack of a better phrase, a tourist to come in and be like, oh, give us all your money.
0: I have one more question from the vendor angle before I I switch sides and talk about it from the DAO perspective. Probably the two most important things in any beta DAO proposal, outside of the actual specifics of the service, are probably the fee and the length of time. We could talk about fees all day long, probably not on this podcast. But I think in terms of the length of these contracts, How do you guys think about them? Because communities are generally in favor of shorter ones, lets of vendors get some initial skin in the game and prove their competency before committing to longer ones. In an ideal world for DAOs, some people think that they should be like quarterly or, or sort of shorter term renewals. But what ends up happening is for the vendors, they just have to spend a huge amount of time every month working actually the governance process. I'm not saying that's not important. Of course that matters, but you just don't want to end up in a situation where the vendor ends up spending like as much time on the governance proposal and the process as the actual service. The latter is what ultimately matters here. So the question long term is there sort of a middle ground that could work that isn't just like quarterly or every 6 months renewals or or is that sort of how it always has to start before going to other structures? Each proposal where you get paid, pushing it through is a ton of work.
1: We probably will just try to reach out directly to every person who's voted in a protocol before. And by the way, that's actually not that many people. For something like Aave and Compound, you know, that's in the 50 to 100 range of people with any meaningful stake, that is. It is a ton of energy to even get people to vote. So we recently had a a renewal with Aave, and we actually had to go to vote twice because the first vote failed to meet. A differential requirement for voting. And the second time through, uh, and it ended up passing unanimously. And we reached out to some of the people who voted the second time and not the first time. And it turns out actually like, oh, somebody was just like away from their ledger. And uh, because of this, they're like, you know, they're out of town. And so the proposal didn't pass basically because one person was out of town. So I think there's, it, it really kind of is a fickle mistress to uh, to put it one way. Participation has also gotten a lot lower over time as gas fees have increased. So the effort going into renewal is tough. And at the same time, yeah, it takes away from energy that can be put towards driving value to the protocol. So in all of our engagements, we've started with shorter agreements. And then when we go to renewal, like in our recent renewal with Ave, we had after a three-month engagement, we now renewed for one year. And so that's going to really allow us to focus on providing value to Ave and helping them balance risk and capital efficiency. So- Pushing out those renewal periods over time is something where, hey, you actually have to build trust with the communities, just like you build trust with whoever your internal stakeholders are on a B two B deal. It's just a little different in that these are often like anons in the community, and you're doing everything completely in the public and in the
0: open. That certainly is a funny anecdote around how someone not having access to their wallets can result in these really important governance decisions just not progressing. Like imagine like Apple or, or Google having really important votes, and because a few people are on vacation or, or sort of unreachable that just like automatically nothing happens. I guess that does happen. So it's not that crazy, but certainly voting and having access to efficient decision making could be, I think, always something that could be easier. I want to switch and now talk about Beta DAO from the DAO angle. And I think there's a lot that goes into it. Most projects and community members don't really understand how to evaluate some of these projects and honestly focus on the wrong things. It's probably to their detriment in the long run where it's hard to work with these DAOs. If these vendors are coming in and trying to provide helpful services and the DAOs are flat out rejecting all of them or accepting all of them, it's just not good. So Larry, you've thought about this from the DAO's angle. You helped the recent audit proposal for Compound where you had a a few different auditors come in and propose their services to do audits for compound on retainer. What advice would you have for any projects or community members thinking about the beta dao process?
2: Putting the DAO hat on for a second. I think the most important thing is knowing what to outsource and knowing what to own in-house. It sort of works like it does for traditional companies. The reason there's so many more startups now in the United States than there were 50 years ago is you can outsource a lot of very basic things to service providers to make your life of starting the company a heck of a lot easier, right? From payments to incorporation with Stripe Atlas to banking with Mercury these are you know mission critical things for the business to have but these are not things you want to own in house because it would take forever to hire people to build it and If that works for companies, and some of the largest companies in the world outsource many different important functions to outside vendors because it's just more efficient that way, if it works for those companies, it probably will also work for DAOs. Every DAO is going to be very different because every DAO owns a very different product. If you're a Compound, maybe you may not want to outsource the engineering of the core contract, but maybe you'll want to outsource audits, or maybe you'll want to have one person within Compound Looking at audits, but not you know a whole team of professional auditors like one of the audit firms. And so I think the things that are mission critical to the DAO that are the key intellectual property and the, um, the point of differentiation you definitely want to own in house. But for many other things, you probably want to outsource it to a service provider who's just going to be better at it than you, and it's going to save you a heck of a lot of time, but also money in the long term. And so Compound, in particular. There's a proposal, which which you you teased, where Compound is basically evaluating different audit firms to audit all of the governance proposals that are happening on-chain. And this makes the life of community members who are submitting proposals a lot easier. And this is the sort of thing, of course, that Compound probably shouldn't own in-house because hiring 10 auditors in-house would take a long time and cost a lot of money. This is probably something you want to outsource to a vendor who's already got the team and who knows the contracts inside out. And so stuff like that, I think, is just going to you know, increasingly start happening. You know, Gauntlet's a great example of this. You outsource risk to Gauntlet. You probably don't want to own all of that in-house, and they're way better at it than you. And so you may as well outsource. And the fee is reasonable. I think that's how Dow should think about it, is think about ways to save money and save time, more importantly, and outsource
0: that to the business that can get you there. And to double-click on that, Larry, that's the starting point for any out what are the most essential services to have at all? And then what am I able to do in-house and what's sort of more effective outside of it? Aside from risk and audit, are there any that come to mind in terms of some that might make sense for projects across the board?
2: I think this is something we are still learning as an industry. There's clear things like audits and risk, but maybe there's other things like marketing and growth and analytics that you may want to outsource, or maybe not. It's not clear to me at the moment what are the things you want to outsource. But I sense that if we look at the traditional things companies outsource, like legal and bookkeeping, maybe DAOs will want to outsource those things to start with. And then as we figure out what are the core problems the DAO has, once we figure those out, at that point we'll be better able to answer what do we start outsourcing what sort of categories do we start outsourcing if you were to
1: take a step back and look at all the stuff that DAOs are doing like for instance every DAO pretty much has a discord and so they've already chosen like a service provider for like basically the chat client that the team is using and as the beat it out ecosystem gets built out, there'll be other services and products that are going to plug right into DAOs the same way that I guess like Discord has been able to. And so it would be crazy to build your own Discord. And I hope in the future, people will look at that the same way when they're like, oh, it'll be crazy to build your own risk management platform. It'd be crazy to run your own audit process internally. Because in the end, service providers and products are able to achieve economies of scale across all of their clients that reduce the cost for any one particular client And so if people are building products for DAOs, it's just going to be really hard to justify doing them internally. I think one interesting thing to point out is when you look at this compound auditing proposal, someone could say, oh, well, maybe the DAO should just hire a security researcher. And it's like, actually, the compound DAO doesn't even really have any full-time devs. And so it's really hard to hire for DAOs. And service providers can plug in. And help them just get more stuff done quickly and basically reap the benefits of these products that have been built out for a variety of customers. And so they'll basically get a service that would be expensive for them to build out themselves much more cheaply for someone who's building it out for the entire web
0: three ecosystem. I think that's a great point. I think it's like when people look at some of the price tags of these proposals in the millions and and they might have this gut reaction of like, wow, that's a lot of money. But they don't really consider the alternative of if you want to build in that ability and skill set in-house, the relative cost, if that would even be of a similar quality. Another example we haven't talked about is flipside recent proposal for sushi swap, where they're basically asking for, if I remember correctly, it's around a million dollars to do analytics and charts for SushiSwap. There was a lot of pushback in the forums like, oh, like a million dollars is so much money. The DAO can spend it on more effective things. But if you think data is sort of an important thing that SushiSwap needs to get growth, maybe not now, that's not the most important thing given some of the recent drama, but the comparable cost to build an in house data team, if you base it off of Silicon Valley compensation numbers, a million dollars probably gets you at most a handful of people on a data team. And flip sides, a team of, I want to say they're at least like 20 or 30, and they would commit at least a few people and years of sort of working with crypto data. So could probably achieve a similar or, or better work output. So I think if you think about it from a, what's my alternative, and replacement angle, it makes a lot more sense to be sort of working with external vendors for a lot of these things.
2: Yeah. And just to get into a little more depth there, if you're like working for a DAO or if you're thinking of starting a DAO, at the end of the day, you really do have a capital allocation problem where you have all this capital in the DAO treasury and you got to figure out what to spend it on in a way that optimizes for ROI. And maybe analytics is a top thing. For ROI, but maybe it's not. Maybe hiring a dev team is the highest return thing you can do. And maybe the second thing could be hiring auditors. But spraying money around and paying all service providers and outsourcing everything is obviously just a huge waste of money because you're not optimizing for the highest use of company resources, DAO resources at any given time. So I would just encourage all teams to really think about what are the things we actually need to grow in the next 12 to 24 months. And those could only be two to four things. And then everything else, maybe it's worth spending money on later down the line and outsourcing, but probably not. And that's how you really conserve resources, but also allocate time and the contributors' time effectively.
1: I think in general, this question of buy versus build isn't that different for DAOs and traditional organizations in that for the most part, you should focus your energy on building things that are unique to your value prop. Often that's for DeFi protocols, solidity development. And the better you can focus your internal energy and organizational capacity on the things that make you special and rely on external service providers and partners for the things that are maybe not so special to you, you're going to be able to just get more done. And I don't think that's too different than traditional organizations. People should build all the things that are kind of their key differentiators as a product. And Everything else they should try to outsource. I always think, like people always talk about this, like build versus buy question. The question really is, could we buy this? Oh, maybe we can't, or maybe we don't really love the solution. And then fine, okay, fine, we'll build it. I think the bias should be towards buying because it just allows you to get more stuff done and ship more. And in the end, protocols are products. They need to ship.
0: On the topic of buying, we haven't, in the grand scheme of things, seen that many beta DAO proposals actually pass. I think there's a lot of reasons for this. I think the main one is communities don't know how to effectively evaluate these decisions of should we buy this? If so, how do we even know if this is a fair proposal, if this is the right price tag, if the services they're offering are adequate to help the project? And this is something that, again, Larry, we thought about recently for Compound and for audits. Can you talk a little bit about process that is going on right now between the auditors opens up Lintrell Bits chain security and how that's evolved over time.
2: Yeah. So just a little bit more background for those listening who are not too familiar with what's happening there. A few months ago, Compound suffered a pretty large exploit. Now I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I think roughly a hundred million dollars or so in Comp was drained out of the, the contracts, out of the treasury. And the The way the bug was caused is, the exploit was caused, that is, you know, someone created a governance proposal to tweak the liquidity mining rewards that comp issues to incentivize people to use it, and there was a bug there. And as a result, people were able to essentially get comp that they were not supposed to get, and a lot of it. And in my mind, this was a very, very simple process failure. And the way you mitigate that process failure not fully it, but certainly mitigate it is just to have a competent auditor look at all of the on-chain proposals prior to them being posted on-chain. So a very simple process that essentially makes governance a little bit de-risked. And so what we did once we kind of spoke to some community members and some team members is we started reaching out to all of the top audit firms and saying, hey guys, Compound needs your services. What amount of money do we need to pay you to make it well worth your time? and the audit business for those who may not know, but I think most people probably know at this point it's a very good business. there's not that many audit firms they're always overbooked there's tons of projects that need their services and so the prices are really high and they're in really high demand and so getting your contracts audited, you know you may speak to them the auditor today and it may take another few months to actually get the contracts looked over because they're so overbooked. And so getting these firms to prioritize you as a customer is really, really difficult. And part of the reason these contract sizes are so large in in the case of Compound, you know, these audit firms are all asking for between $1 to $4 million, is the reason they're asking for so much money is because there's so few of them and there's so many customers. And because they need to reprioritize their business and their resources, their internal talent to the DAO and to the needs of the DAO. At the end of the day, what the fair price is, is the price at which the deal happens. And so right now it's looking like that price for a full year's worth of audit is between $1 to $4 million. Now, what we may learn after the fact is we overpaid, the DAO overpaid, and we actually don't need to pay that much for that level of service. There's this sort of concept of performance oversupply, sort of like when you're living in the city and maybe you're buying like a Hummer. You just don't need that Hummer. You're not going to use it. Same sort of thing may happen here where maybe the DAOs don't need that many audit services and they may want to downgrade to a, a lower tier of a contract. So time will tell what the fair price is, but at the moment, based on supply and demand and willingness to pay by the DAOs, that's where the numbers shaking out.
0: And I think another interesting element of having I think yeah OpenZeppelin posted the original proposal. They were sort of the the first one. And then chain security and trail of bits also came into it. After that, I think it was an interesting dynamic where community members started, it prolonged the process, which again, isn't necessarily a good thing. I think there was pros and cons, but what it did force is just more community discussion and engagement because people wanted to understand, okay, how are these different proposals actually compared to one another? How are they actually similar? What are the key? one or two things that it comes down to for us to vote upon. So having that process, it's helpful to allow people to, to have a, a closer look at things. It'll be interesting to see in a few days what ends up happening. I'm also very interested to
1: see how that vote shakes out. I think it's honestly, the protocol's in a really great place because they got three fairly competitive bids for a service that they truly need. That's pretty rare and beat it out. And so, I, you know, I think that Compound has a, a bunch of good options going forward. I do think that it is hard to compare those options. For most community members, it's gonna be hard. I happen to have worked with people from Oatsapolit and QuadStap and other auditors before. So I kind of have an opinion on this. And so is, so do other people at Gauntlet. But very few people who own Comp Tokens have hired an auditor before. Right now what we've seen with this proposal, Reverie has come in and helped basically organize and get these bids in, which is hugely important for Compound. You know, you can actually see OpenSupplons original proposal was actually for twice as much it's already resulted in more competitive pricing for compound. And I think also they've sort of reduced the level of service to something that makes more sense for compound. I don't even have a problem with their original $8 million proposal, except that it'd be very hard for compound to take advantage of it, considering how often proposals go out. But anyways, yeah, I think Reverie coming in and encouraging a bunch of people to bid competitively on this has driven enormous value to compound. And I also kind of think that I would like to see the space evolve where maybe token holders can also bring in someone to weigh in on, and evaluate these various different bids. If someone were to come in and be like, hey, I'm gonna, I'll am gonna, i go interview the Open Zeppelin and Trail of Bits and chain security teams, and I'll, I'll go read through their old audit reports, and I'll go compile their track records as auditors, that'd be really helpful for the community. And someone could come in and be like, hey, I'm an expert. And I think we should go with know, Open Zeppelin, or whatever. That would really help the community make decisions. And I think in the end, token holders really want to like vote from their own first principles on things. And it's just... A little naive to think that you know enough about all these things going on to really be able to weigh in. And I certainly am I think about DeFi and Crypto 247 and I still see proposals where I'm like, oh, I kind of, you know, I'd love to ask someone else at gauntlet what they think about this because I know that they know more than I do. So I think it's gonna be really hard to to continue to make informed decisions here and and I'd love to see other people kind of enter the space the same way Reverie has to help fill out bids and have people propose bids, someone else will come in and help people make decisions on them. So I, I think that could be an
0: interesting role for people to play in governance going forward. This is something that comes up, honestly, every podcast I do for Pledge of Allegiance is just the importance of, of of having hierarchy within a DAO and allowing certain people to receive delegation, whether that's direct votes or some sort of financial decision-making power or financial allocation. There's so many categories of, of governance proposals that are all different from each other. And the most important ones should go back to an on-chain vote, like if, if you're voting on the supply schedule or inflation or, or vesting for like or team, like that's super essential that everyone should have and arguably should have a voice on. But if it's these niche things that most people don't understand, I think what's probably better is to delegate a small group of people that the community trusts and the community Knows is is aligned long term to sort of make a more informed decision as opposed to designed by committee. It also makes the vendors more comfortable. They're not they're not forced to post everything publicly and have this really honestly awkward public face off with a bunch of other service providers and companies. And it's just not something you want to go through as as a company. So if it's done behind closed doors with the right decision makers, I think that's probably the key. I think it. That could be a process that works better.
1: Yeah, I think the ability to at least discuss proposal terms with sort of like a partner who works for the protocol as a service provider, you know, and doing so out of view of the public eye before you then, of course, then do involve the community. I think that could be helpful. I think that for, I don't know, for someone like Gauntlet, I'm totally fine doing everything publicly. One, because we've done it already and I've kind of gotten used to it at this point. But I think for, for instance, like hiring employees, like I kind of think it might make sense for some of those budgeting decisions and like in salary and comm and stuff like that. I don't know if all of that has to be public. And especially when you, you, know, you look at situations where people are just sensitive to big numbers. And in the end, I think a successful DeFi protocol CEO probably should be Get a couple million dollars of compensation a year, depending on the size of the protocol, et cetera. And I just think that's something that very few communities would vote on. If, and, you'd be, and every community would be better served by having a best-in-class CEO working for them. And so I, I kind of think like certain things where you know people's individual compensation—that's kind of a sensitive thing. Then definitely having sort of some internal protocol team that's making some of these budgeting decisions could be really helpful. On the beat of Dow side, I mean, I don't know, maybe just because I have a pathological conviction that we're just better than everybody else at managing risk. That's why I'm not kind of scared of having these conversations in the open, but I'd certainly see other circumstances where it might provide a lot of
2: value. I strongly suspect that 20 years from now, when we're thinking about the early 2020s, we'll be laughing at how Dow actually did business in these days. Like what you guys mentioned, I mean, compensation being public, that's just awkward, right? And what that does is, it just makes it really uncomfortable for anyone to want to work for the DAO because then they have to allow their salary to be open to anyone and to criticism. How many people in the world actually want to do that? Very few. And so as a result, DAOs are going to have a lot of trouble hiring until they figure out that, hey, you need some sort of privacy layer for a compensation and hiring. And I think the same sort of thing, right? A lot of people sort of talk about we're going to have a bunch of committees where maybe there's a compensation committee, a hiring committee, a audit committee that's in charge of hiring auditors, stuff like that. And it sort of starts looking like the Chinese Communist Party, there's a bunch of committees everywhere. If you look at companies, there's divisions and functions. Maybe there's the finance function and the marketing function and the product function. And I think those sort of things just expedite things incredibly for an organization. Yes, they are hierarchy, but it's hierarchy that's dictated on moving quickly and putting people who are incompetent in areas that they are competent in. And I think as DAOs sort of mature, that's sort of where we're probably going to be headed, is these sort of committees. We don't know exactly which committees are going to be formed, but some sort of structure is is going to be needed. Otherwise, we're we're going to have complete chaos, which is very much the case today.
0: And there's an argument to be made that there's some types of decisions that DAOs are just fundamentally poorly suited for right now and potentially longer term. It's still quite early for DAOs. They're a bit of a buzzword. I think people are still recognizing how they best function. It's clear that hierarchy of of some kind is needed for certain types of decisions. But yeah, certainly something that we'll all learn about over the next few years. So switching gears, another term similar to beta DAO we've heard a lot about is data DAO. And there's a lot of different ways to define it and I think it means different things to different people. But how do you think about Dow to Dow and what it is, especially relative to Vita Dow?
1: I think for any organization, there are going to be trade-offs between running sort
0: of a business or in, you
1: know, in the US, like a Delaware C-Corp and a Dow. Any organization should just make its own decision about how they want to run their company. I think for Gauntlet so far, it's made the most sense for us to just be a regular company hire people with benefits and things like that. I mean, that's been the way that we are able to get the most done. Anyone who works in, in Web3 in the greater crypto space cares about decentralization. And I think that if there's some way for us to do that, we'd be interested. But in the end, you got to do what's best to provide value to these DAOs. And sometimes that's going to be a DAO organization. Sometimes that's going to be a regular business. I think as there's greater sort of regulatory and legal clarity on DAOs, then you know, that's going to make it easier for people to make that step. But I actually really think that the beta DAO versus DAO to DAO, that trade off is one that really the organization can make internally and is sort of decoupled from the value provided to the DAO.
2: We spoke about beta DAO, we spoke about data DAO. Another cool thing to think about, and I haven't really seen this happen yet, but I'm sure it will, is DAO to business. Like imagine a, a Compound or a Uniswap going to a Robinhood and saying, hey, why don't you drive your users to us, to the DAO? and structuring some sort of agreements there. I think right now it's super difficult because, well, if you're a large company, you have a compliance team and interfacing with a non-incorporated entity is all but impossible. But over time, maybe these DAOs will form legal entities and will service businesses. Or maybe businesses will be able to work with DAOs that have no legal entity. Time will tell, but stuff like that could be really
0: interesting as well. Yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure I saw recently that Coinbase has actually opened up access to... DAI yields and and it's powered by compound. Like Coinbase has had user yields for over a year now, maybe 2 years, but that's with USDC and it's like 1 to 2% I think in the past week yeah they now directly work with Compound on the back end. I'm not sure how it's being done, but so I think it's yeah maybe that could be one of the the earlier examples of, of huge companies doing being serviced by DAO. But I'm yeah, again I'm I'm sure it's going to happen more and more.
1: Compound Labs also is just one of many contributors to the Compound DAO. In a way, like if a DAO were to do something, it's probably going to look like some business that's contracted with the DAO. And, and of course, the structure of Compound's Compound Labs contract with the Compound DAO is a little different than, I don't know, Gauntlets, where right? Gauntlet gets a stream of comp tokens. Compound Labs got a distribution of comp at launch, but they're still incentivized to drive value to the DAO because of those comp token holdings. And so, yeah, if you were to figure out what DAO to be looks like, it's probably going to look like some business that's employed by the DAO going and figuring out sort of the B2B angle and then using that to drive value to the DAO. So the
0: compound example is a great one and, and probably what these deals will look like going forward. Awesome. John and Larry, thanks for taking the time today to come on and chat about B2DAO. I think this is the first of many conversations I think we'll have that touch on beta 2 dao I think it's such an important part of governance going forward. And when people talk about some of the most interesting, controversial, impactful proposals and just debates and governance, whether it's something like swap recently or or other proposals, I think a lot of them come back to this question of beta DAO and how do we incentivize employees to work for the project? So thanks again, guys, for coming on and, and looking forward to seeing what happens. Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: Thanks for hosting, Derek.